Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with a longtime friend of mine, Dr. Lou Probst. Hello, Dr. Probst. I'm really glad to have you here. Glad to be here, Scott. I've known you for 25 years, give or take. Um, you've been involved in this industry a long time, and you're a tremendous friend to optometry and optometry patients. So I'm just really thrilled that I can tell your story. Glad to be here. Uh, you were a Canadian by birth. Tell me about the Canadian to American transition in your life. Well, you know, I, uh, I still think of myself as a Canadian, but I have to tell you, Scott, um, after living in the U.S. for 20 years and having a wife that's American and three children who are American, uh, I think it's about time for me to apply. That's on my to-do list, and uh, it's going to happen probably in the next year or two. Were you brought up in any sort of like rural part of Canada or in a, a municipal uh, urban area? What was your childhood like? Uh, I'm a city boy. I grew up in Toronto. Uh, Toronto. The biggest, yeah, the biggest city in in Canada by far. And uh, yeah, I, I'm a you know grew up uh, riding public transit and you know living the city life. So yeah, I was a a city boy. And uh, but now I'm kind of the opposite. I, I I'm not really not a big fan of big cities. I like the rural kind of laid back country life. Interesting. Um, yeah. I suppose it's stereotypical to ask, but did you play hockey as a kid? You know, Scott, I, I didn't, and uh, and it, it's true that everyone in in Canada plays hockey. Like my next door neighbor had a hockey rink in their backyard. Right. I had uh, multiple people in my neighborhood actually eventually made it to the NHL. Uh, so hockey was huge, but I have weak ankles, and I was the worst skater uh, imaginable. So uh, I quickly realized that uh, there was no hope for me in hockey. So uh, unlike other Canadians, I actually. Uh, didn't play hockey. Actually, I barely skated at all and uh, ended up going into swimming. And that's what I focused on for you know my entire uh, school and college career. I was a swimmer. So let's go to your educational training. You do med school in Canada um, and then you go do your cornea and refractive surgery uh, fellowship at the University of Minnesota. What was the state of refractive surgery then? Well, it, it was really uh, in its infantile uh, I was in medical school. I read about uh, RK, radial keratotomy, and it uh, sounded interesting, but of course it was uh, extremely controversial and, and it didn't work all that well. And it was kind of done by a, a renegade group of ophthalmologists, uh, and most ophthalmologists and optometrists frowned upon it. Uh, and then, uh, but then when the eczema laser started to come in, that was during my internship after medical school. And I remember looking at the original papers, they were done by a woman named uh, Marguerite McDonald in New Orleans. And, uh, and I remember looking at that thinking, you know, this could be it, you know, this could be the thing. But still, um, I, I went in ophthalmology and uh, went to my fellowship at the University of Minnesota. And even there, uh, it was not a, a widespread thing. It was still kind of a little bit fringe, still frowned upon, still kind of considered to be sort of a, uh, sort of a, a controversial area, and there were a lot of controversies at the time, including whether it was okay to do bilateral procedures, 
um, whether it was okay to co-manage. Uh, those, and you remember back in those days, yeah, Scott, I mean, it, it was, uh, it, it sounds crazy now because everything's so established, but back then there were a lot of question marks. Why did you choose ophthalmology when you left med school as the first area of specialty? Well, you know, I actually went into medical school thinking I was going to be a plastic surgeon. And, uh, and that was kind of, that was always my goal. But then uh, when I got in med school, I went through all the rotations and the plastic surgeons and, and the patients struck me as a little odd. It just, it just, <laughs> it just didn't all seem to make sense to me. And, uh, and it made me a little uncomfortable. Just uh, maybe it was just a little too um, uh, superficial, I guess you might say, without, you know, I don't have anything against plastic surgery or plastic surgeons. But for me, I, 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 felt, uh, I felt I wanted something that I could really understand and set my teeth into. And uh, when, the, when I got to do the ophthalmology rotation, all, they were, you know, everything was organized. Uh, they had all this fancy equipment. People were coming in getting their problems solved, leaving, and, and more so, you know, the ophthalmologists themselves made an impression upon me. You know, they all seem to have their act together. They all seem to be dressed well. They all seem to be confident, and they all seem to be happy. And that was kind of in contrast to some of the other doctors I met who looked kind of burned out and fried and, and miserable. So uh, so I thought I looked at this group, and I looked at what they're doing, and I thought, that's, that's me. That's what I want to do. I read an article in which you said ophthalmology is a very precise specialty, and you have taken on this precision aspect in your life. How can you describe ophthalmology as more precise than, say, cardiology, radiology, and such? What's your description of that precision in ophthalmology that almost exceeds others, perhaps? Well, I, you know, I don't have much uh, knowledge, frankly, about cardiology, but my wife's a radiologist, so I can uh, speak about that. And uh, radiology is certainly, uh, you know, it's a very impressive specialty. Uh, recently, in the last 20 years, it's gone from uh, them sitting in a dark room to now doing a lot of procedures and interacting with patients, and, and they have a lot of uh, very sophisticated tests. So there's a lot to radiology, but the one way that ophthalmology differs is it's based on uh, very repetitive very uh, precise uh, procedures because they tend to use precise technology like lasers, diamond knives, uh, or ultrasonic uh, fragmentation in the case of cataracts, or even laser fragmentation of the lens. So there's a lot of uh, very equipment, uh, very uh, precise equipment. And then because we're doing so many procedures that are usually fairly uh, short in, in duration, uh, ophthalmology ophthalmology particularly lends itself to uh, doing a lot of procedures, unlike other specialties where, like an orthopedic surgeon, let's say, might, might do uh, 10 or uh, 12 uh, hip replacements, let's say, in a day, or uh, that would be considered incredible. Whereas in ophthalmology, uh, you know, that, those kind of numbers are very, very small because, uh, because of the fact that procedures are so short. And when you're doing things like that, and you're doing them over and over again, you tend to get very, very good at them, and you tend to focus on the details because it's, you know, it's all about the details. And so it, ophthalmology lends itself to that. And the other thing is, and you know this, of course, being an optometrist, there's no compromising in terms of people's vision. You know, nobody comes to you saying, you know, I just want to see okay. You know, they, they, you know, they want to see well. And if you're going to give them what they want, be it glasses, contacts, or LASIK, they're interested in seeing the best they can and ideally better than everyone else can see. And, you know, that's our job. That's what we got to do, you know, so we got to deliver and people are 
have a high expectation for what we want to deliver. I want to ask you about your personal endeavors into triathlons. You started building bikes. Again, it feels like there's this precision aspect that came into that. How did you get into that? And tell us about some of what you've done in triathloning. Well, you know, it's, it's been a long journey. It started 20 years ago. Mainly it was a stress reliever. I yeah. uh, started running and biking. And then my wife said, you know, you used to be a swimmer. I'd put on a lot of weight back then, you know, actually, that's probably when you first met me, Scott, you know, 25 years ago, when I first started, I was uh, substantially heavier uh, than I am now. I don't know if you remember. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and no, my, my belt, uh, belt buck, my belt size was substantially uh, bigger then. But anyway, um, I, I started, you know, exercising and my wife said, you know, since you're doing these things, why don't you try a triathlon? And I didn't know what I was doing. I was, you know, I had, there's so much to it and I, I didn't know much about it, but I, I kind of, it kind of intrigued me. And so I sort of got hooked on all the details and I started working at it and, uh, you know, you work on the running and the running technique and the swimming I'd already done, but I had to practice open water swimming because I was used to pool swimming, but the cycling in particular is heavily based on, on the bike you have. Uh, of course you have to train. And uh, there's a whole, uh, all these different methods of training and interval training and endurance training. But, but the, you know, the, the technology, the type of bike you have is important. And, and what I discovered was first, uh, you had to know to learn how to take care of your bike. So, you know, you had to be able to change the tire and, you know, deal with the flat and that kind of thing. But then more than that, um, I found that I really wanted to be able to tailor my own bike fit. And I wanted to be able to create the, the you know, the platform on the bike that was going to suit me. And you go to a bike store and they spend half an hour kind of, you know, fitting you and sizing you up. And then they send you out the door and it's kind of like, well, you know, I kind of want more than that. I want to really dial this down to do the best I can. And so I decided to just take ownership on the whole thing and just, you know, just start building the bike right from scratch. So I ordered a frame and just piece by piece. It took me all winter, but uh, I built one bike and then the next winter I built another bike and then the next winter I built another bike. So it, uh, it was uh, it was fun. It was a challenge, and you know it was a precision oriented thing again. And uh, but it, it's beautiful. It's fun when you you put all that work in, and then when you see a finished product, and you think, "Wow, that's so cool! I did that." You know that that it's it's a fun thing. Speaking of open water swimming, and also you and your wife's um, interest in your lives and raising money for charity, you have the story around right. swimming. Uh, somewhere near Mackinac and tugging a boat while you were doing it. I'd love to hear more about that. Well, you know, I swim with uh, a lot of uh, different, uh, two different masters groups uh, in swimming. And so I know a lot of uh, swimmer, adult swimmers like myself who, who uh, used to swim in college. They're, they're still pretty good. You know, of course, not as good as they used to be, but uh, they're still pretty good. And uh, we were all trying to stay in shape and some people still race. Um, and so through this group, I was invited to participate in a, a fundraising effort, and this was uh, a set up by a guy uh, who grew up in Flint, Michigan. And as you remember from a couple of years ago, they had that water crisis in Flint, Michigan, where all these uh, kids unfortunately got lead poisoning, and uh, it was a real kind of uh, tragedy. And uh, so he set up a fundraising effort, and the idea was we would uh, tow a dive boat, a 50-foot dive boat, uh, five miles across the Straits of uh, Mac, you know, it's Mackinac or Mackinac. Um, and, uh, with this guy, uh, the fundraiser who was a piano player. And so his piano, uh, was on the boat and he, uh, played the piano, you know, intermittently as we towed across the Mackinac Strait. And, uh, now there's nine of us and we were, uh, tethered to, uh, the boat by ropes. 
and uh, it took us seven hours. It uh, initially, it looked like it was only gonna, sorry about the uh, beeps there. Um, it initially was looking like it was only gonna take us like three hours, but then the currents came and the wind came and and uh, I tell you, a 50 foot dive boat really catches, catches <laughs> wind. the wind. And uh, I mean, there were two hours, I don't think we moved at all. Wow. And uh, so it was, yeah, it was, it was tough and it was cold. And uh, when you're in the middle there, you, the land looks pretty far away. But um, but anyway, we did it and we raised a hundred thousand wow. dollars, which was pretty cool. How, how yeah. long were you in the water yourself? Were you in? Were you all in the water the entire seven hours? No, I was in the water myself probably about three okay. or so. Um, you know, we we went in a half hour uh, intervals. Okay. And so you know, I swam and then we'd switch out and someone else would swim. And, uh, and after about two hours, I was exhausted, you know, I mean, towing that boat was hard, you know, and, and also I was cold. I was really cold because the water was about, you know, 60, 65. And uh, now we were wearing wetsuits, uh, but still two hours in there, I was getting cold. So I was just exhausted. But the problem was we hadn't made it across. <laughs> and, and uh, I wasn't going to, we weren't going to do this thing and not finish. Right. So finally, uh, we were like, and I, I really thought I was done, but, uh, but, you know, finally it was like, we, you know, we have to have a push. So we all, all got in with ropes attached to us and we just all just swam for another, another hour straight and finally made it across. Yeah. It was, uh, it's not something I want to do every year. I can tell you that it was, uh, it was fun. It was adventure, but, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was exhausting. Yeah. That's a great story. So you've talked about your wife, who's a radiologist, Kate. She specializes in radiology around breast cancer. I got to guess, yeah. I mean, you said she's now working at this full time. The kids are getting a little older. How does the work she does inspire you? Um, well, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I don't, you know, frankly, she's so specialized in breast radiology that I don't understand what she's doing. I mean, she'll write a paper and she'll say, you know, Lou, you've written a bunch of papers. You know, can you take a look at this? And I, I started, I can read it. And I'm like, Kate, hey, like, I, I, I can't understand this. I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm not a radiologist. I don't know your, your jargon, you know? So, um, but uh, what, what she does inspire me, she's very involved in teaching. And, uh, and she just loves teaching, you know, the medical students, the residents, and she really embraces it. And it's, it's refreshing to see somebody so passionate about what they're doing and just caring so much about it. It, it kind of makes me remember, you know, how I felt, you know, in the very beginning and, and how, uh, and how, you know, how young and you know, fresh people can be. And, and also it's, you know, it's funny when the young, you know, the young students, cause they come to our house or, you know, we'll take them on uh, out to dinner and that kind of thing. They're so, they're so, first of all, they're so intelligent and they're so, um, uh, they have, they're just, uh, they have the, all these, you know, dreams and, and uh, aspirations, but they're also so naive, you know, and it's, it's fun, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to see them with these, uh, with all this potential. And yet they haven't formed any opinions yet. It's it's a kind of exciting, and and to see my wife participating in the, in helping them, guiding them, and supporting them. Because you know it's funny when I was in school, and I'm sure when you're in school too, there was no support support groups to help us. You know, uh, so let's say somebody's you know depressed because they're not doing well, or their parent died, or uh, you know maybe they're just homesick. There was nobody to talk to about that, but now uh, at the at, le at least uh, in my wife's case, that you know that you know she fills that role too, kind of like their their support group. So it's kind of I don't know. I, I find it uh, um, 
uh, I, I find it sort of, uh, I guess, uh, admirable. I, I, uh, I, I, and I'm, I'm proud of her to see her do it. Now, you have three teenage children. Are they experiencing any interest in what they want to do in life? Or are they happy enough getting through their schooling and, and uh, enjoying the things you do as a family? Um, you know, I think my kids are in a tough spot, frankly. Um, you know, with myself being a, a physician, my wife being a physician, and both of us really being, you know, very focused on our careers and very focused on doing a good job. You know, for for both my wife and I, it's it's not enough just to, you know, do what we do. We have to do it well. We just own it. We own our jobs. And uh, and our kids see that. And uh, so I, I know that they are all thinking about a career in, in healthcare and, and uh, you know, some type of being some type of professional. Um, you know, you got to be careful, of course, leaning on your kids too much. Uh, I don't want them to feel like they've disappointed us or failed. But at the same time, I do really believe that um, being a professional uh, of any sort is a great thing in life. Uh, you always have that to fall back on. Nobody can ever take it away from you. Um, you know, when I was a uh, teenager, my father got was a businessman, a you know fairly successful businessman, but he worked for a big corporation and he ended up getting fired, and uh, it was devastating uh, to him. You know, he got other jobs and he did fine, but I I saw that when I was a teenager, and I thought, you know, I don't want anyone to ever fire me. I, I want to make sure that I always have something, you know, a shingle, so that you know I can always go somewhere else and do my thing. And and I feel the same thing for my kids. I think having that professional uh, certification it doesn't have to be MD, you know, it could be uh, an OD, it could be uh, really any type of professional, but I, I do believe, and, it, and, and particularly for my daughter, I, I really feel that women need to have uh, a method of supporting themselves so they have a way of being independent in life. Uh, I don't want my daughter to be uh, dependent on a man, and uh, just the way my wife's not dependent on me. I, I, I feel strongly about that because I, I really feel that women need to be uh, strong and they need to be empowered if they're going to be able to, uh, you know, do well life and, and uh, stand up for themselves and, and have their rightful place. Well, you say they're in a tough spot, but it seems to me they're in a great spot. You you both seem to be incredible uh, role models, and I'm sure that'll serve them well. And I know they'll find some way of serving uh, people in, in some way, given what you've done to inspire them. Let's shift to the, the TLC story a little bit. It had to be 1996 or so, uh, when myself and some Wisconsin and Michigan optometrists were working with TLC to establish a presence in the U.S., uh, the late Dennis Kennedy, I think, was uh, in the Detroit area. The late, uh, and my partner, Vic Connors, uh, was impassioned about yeah. bringing laser to Madison, Wisconsin, and TLC supported that. TLC founder, Jeff Bashat was becoming very busy at that center in Windsor. And in those yeah. early years, you got involved. I, I can remember a story yeah. about a patient who ended up in Windsor, and they said, well, the patient's going to see Dr. Probst. And I said, no, the patient needs to see Dr. Bashat. And it it took exactly one interaction for us, for me to understand that you had this precise um, patient caring approach. When you were in those early years establishing TLC, uh, both in Windsor as it was growing and also in its first spots in the US, what was it like to be along for that ride? You know, it was, uh, it was really a special time and I was uh, just blessed and so lucky to be part of it. I mean, you know, all the stars aligned. It was, uh, it was truly, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and I was uh, able to capitalize on it. 
and uh, and it, it it just turned out far better than I could ever imagine. You know, I finished my fellowship at the University of Minnesota with uh, Ed Holland, who's uh, now you know probably the most famous corneal surgeon in the world. Uh, but even at that time, he's, he's a great man, still a good friend of mine. And I, I had to come back to Canada because my visa uh, requirements, you know, made uh, required me to go back. So I go back to Canada, and at that moment, uh, later vision correction was exploding in Canada, and it hadn't been approved in the U.S. And, um, and interestingly enough, it's, I don't want to digress too much, but I met Jeff uh, during my fellowship because my wife, uh, one of her friends was getting married in Windsor, and so she said, well, you know, we have to go back to this wedding in Windsor. And I said, uh, what do you mean we? Uh, you know, have fun. I'm doing a fellowship, you know. And she goes, no, you're coming. <laughs> And we weren't married at the time, and I was. This was kind of news to me that I had suddenly had to participate in this. So I was like, okay. So I came. I came with my hundred dollars suit and my top ciders uh, to go to this wedding. And my my wife was the maid of honor, so she was all involved in all this stuff, and I wasn't doing anything. So I was at uh, my wife's uh, parents' house, and they said, you know, we found this. Uh, we passed this. These people in the mall, and they're handing out these pamphlets about this laser center. And I picked up this pamphlet, and I was like. But I've never heard anything about this before. But I'm just sitting at their, her parents' house. I had nothing to do. So I said, you know, do you think you could drive me over there? And so I drove over there. And Jeff was there. And uh, Jeff Michelle was there. And he was patients everywhere. And so I ended up meeting him. And uh, I wrote him a letter in my fellowship that said, you know, I think I might be able to work with you. And uh, later later on in the fellowship, he he called me up. And he said, when can you start? And uh, and And that's how I started with TLC. I joined Jeff. And uh, and uh, and you know what the funny thing is, Scott, is now I'm on a uh, a committee. It's called the Physician Leadership uh, Committee for the the group, the, the laser company group that uh, now controls TLC. And Jeff's on that committee too. Uh, I'm working with Jeff again. 25 years later, Jeff and I are now like you know back, uh, you know, right where we were 25 years ago, talking things over. It's 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 amazing how. In this world of ours, things come full circle, it seems. That center was incredibly busy, but it was, going back to this word, precise. There was a clear operational model. Uh, it was full of technology. Um, and I don't mean to say this the wrong way, but Windsor doesn't strike me as a place where that's what's expected of Windsor, right? It's, it's a little more hardworking. And so you had patients, obviously, that were flocking there uh, from Canada, right, Canadians, but also coming across to the US. Um, what kind of activities did you try to use to optimize the, the workflow there? Because when you got there, it was already busy and you made it more busy. How, how did you do that? Well, I got to give credit to Jeff, really. I mean, uh, you know, Jeff's the one who started the center. He had the vision, and I just plugged myself in. I was like a sponge. I mean, I, the way I looked at it was, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and I'm just going to learn everything I can about this, and then, uh, you know, if I can see ways of improving it, I'll, I'll do that, right? But um, but, um, but Jeff had it all sorted out, and, and he had a, he's such a smart guy, and, uh, and, you know, and I learned so much. I already learned so much from the other, my other teachers. But then Jeff just uh, showed me a whole other uh, world in terms of what to do. So I just plugged in to Jeff's uh, situation. And, um, and you know, the, you're right, Windsor, uh, you seem to know Windsor a lot better than most people. It is a very working class. And it was basically at that time known for casinos, uh, strip joints, and uh, laser centers. And the reason is because it's so easy to cross the border. You know, you can fly into Detroit airport and be across the border in Canada in less than 30 minutes. 
And so uh, it's a, a very, and it's extremely, uh, I think it might be the world's busiest uh, border crossing. And, uh, and it's so easy to get across. So now, of course, that changed with 9-11 and, yeah. and other things. The border became more difficult. But uh, we really were set up to uh, treat Americans because the, uh, the laser wasn't approved in the States yet. And then later on, we were set up to treat uh, Americans with technology that was more advanced than the technology that was approved in the States. So that kind of advantage went on for uh, about... I don't know, five to eight years. And then that window kind of closed. Finally, the technology in the U.S. caught up. And then there really wasn't a big reason for Americans to go to Canada anymore. Well, as the national medical director of TLC to this day, you've been really active, if not taking the key role in helping establish this incredible relationship that that company has with optometrists in the form of co-management. Why does that model work so well? Well, it's... um, it's it's a system of checks and balances, and uh, and that's what I think really is the is the is the key to it. Um, if you have a laser center that let's say does not co-manage, then it's driven by direct marketing. Uh, you know that center would advertise, and they may advertise the you know the technology, the surgeon, or the price, but uh, but there's no real checks and balances. You know the patient comes in, they get treated, they leave, and I suppose now with social media, that would be the main way that a consumer could sort of evaluate that center look on social media. But if you're co-managing and the way I look at it is every single one of my patients is being uh, evaluated by another doctor after that procedure. So, you know, you have a patient, uh, they say, Hey, Dr. Jens, who should I go to for for LASIK? You say, well, you should see Dr. Probst at TLC. They go to see me, they come back and you say, well, how was it? You know, and they say it was fantastic. And you're like, great. And you look at their eye and you're like, okay, that's beautiful work. And you tell them that, and and you know, and then that's that's kind of made sure that the patient's got the ideal treatment. Now, conversely, let's say it doesn't happen that way. Let's say some of those pieces are missing. Maybe they have some com- complaints about the way they're treated. Well, you might think twice about whether you're going to send the next patient to me, or at the very least, you might give me a call and say, "Hey, what's going on over there?" And you know, give us a little you know kick in the butt to you know maybe. Uh, you know, get back on, you know, our program back in order. And uh, similarly, if the results aren't as good, that's going to, you know, eventually reflect on how, who you send your patients to. So I think it really works out for the patient because it ensures uh, quality of care and it keeps everyone honest. And I, and it, it really does, because I'll tell you something, Scott, um, I actually now, uh, the lasers we use now have a slit lamp right, uh, right on them. And so uh, I do, when once I finish the, the LASIK case, I take the slit lab and I scan the corneas, you know, and and even if I see like anything, like a, just a tiny speck, and even if it's peripheral, I know it will never affect the vision, never make any difference to the patient at all. I still can't bear the thought of that speck going back to the referring doctor and having them looking at that the next day and going, think of themselves, well, it's beautiful and the patient's seeing 2020, but there is a little, little speck, you know, little, little you know, and so uh, I think, I think of that every single case. And I, I, I don't, I'm look, of course, I'm looking for a good surgical result. I'm looking for, for a good visual result, but I also want that referring doctor to, I always want that referring doctor to look at that eye and go, that's beautiful, you know, and, Maybe that's a little superficial, but no. it's uh, that's that's the that's the the influence the co-managing relationship has on me. It it makes me want to uh, perform to the highest level all the time because I, I really feel almost like I have to. Well, I can tell you that I just saw my brother Eric for his you know general examination. You did his 
over minus 10 LASIK it has to be at least 20 years ago now. And, wow. you know, the other thing you know is that that is almost your signature, right, on, on the cornea. And so I think it's not uh, superficial to think about how what you leave there is what that other doctor sees all the time. It's a it's a measure of your signature of of, of your work, and uh, he's ecstatic and thrilled to this day. And and as are all these hundred twenty five thousand patients you've seen. Back to the optometry co management part. Um, you know, you like to say, and, and you do it very well, that when you do refractive surgery, it's all you do. And that it makes you really good at it. We talked earlier about that's the precision aspect of ophthalmology is the repetitiveness of it and the, the want to get every case right down to the, to, to the nano. When optometry does this checks and balances thing, it also provides patient care value. And I know you find that to be useful. How have you benefited from working with optometrists in the co-management of these patients, both before in the qualifying and, and screening patients and after in assessing these patients on whom you've left that signature uh, mark of, of an outcome? Well, you know, it, it, again, if you kind of go back to comparing it to, let's say, I, uh, what would be like if you're not co-managing, you know, a patient comes in, you, you do their correction and they leave. You don't really have any insight into that patient at all. Um, whereas uh, when an optometrist refers a patient, that's your patient you're referring. I mean, you often have seen that patient for years. You know that patient. And so you uh, you might refer the patient in, and but you might kind of include a, include a note, something to the effect of, you know, that this patient has these concerns and we you know, might, might want to, you know, just take this one step at a time uh, or, or, or uh, you know, similarly, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, that you've done this patient's family and, you know, and, and so there's that, there's those kind of details there. And then for, and so it's, that's helpful because it, it helps me kind of uh, tailor my response. It's your it's, patients aren't, they come with a whole history. They're not just, you know, another person who's shown up and, I don't really know them very well. And then the, the in, in further in, in follow-up, similarly, uh, although most people do very well and it's it's not any, you know, real uh, challenges, there, you know, there are some people that they get themselves, uh, you know, concerned about, you know, why is one eye seem to be a little better than the other? Or what, you know, one eye is a little dry or, you know, and, and, the, and, and the, the sort of ongoing uh, co-managing uh, relationship allows you to kind of help that patient and they're going to trust you because they've known you for a lot longer than they've known us and known me. And so uh, you can provide that sort of support for those people. And some, and finally, if there's ever an issue, let's say there's somebody who has a, you know, uh, any sort of significant problem, then we can work together to kind of work through it. Let's say, uh, let's say somebody, um, you know, uh, despite all our counseling, they're presbyopic and they're, they're surprised they need reading glasses afterwards. Unfortunately, uh, this, you know, how we go through this with everybody ad nauseum, but right. um, there is somebody, there always is somebody like once every two or three years and they come back and you're like, really? <laughs> like, you're really, really doing this? But, but anyway, uh, but then we can work together to try to work through that and, and try to, you know, sort out what's the best answer to make them happy. So, you know, it's, it's all about taking care of the patients and it's all about relationships. And, uh, and I find the team approach is so much stronger than if you're just going alone. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, optometrists pride themselves on being this frontline, if you will, PCP-like eye care provider where it is relationship management and referring to good sources and working together in partnership with good sources for surgical care. And, and you embrace that. And in many places, 
it's okay. The patient still, it, it works out that they get a, a surgery from somebody who isn't tightly related to the optometrist. But this model, uh, maybe you and I are biased because we've done this for so long, including together. But I would want anybody who's listening to this to take your approach and, and take this as an expectation for how an ophthalmologist can feel positive about the work with an optometrist. I want to talk about your patient education manner. You are as much as any that I worked with in my career, very willing to just sit in a relaxed fashion and have this conversation with the patient. And that must come from somewhere because it's just not the norm. I know for you, it feels like the norm, but I'm sure you've gone to healthcare appointments with family members or others where you can't believe the level of disconnect and lack of willingness. Where does your empathy and want for patient education come from? Well, it comes uh, comes honestly, you know, it comes from the heart. But uh, what you're talking about there, uh, Scott, I think it's a sad breakdown of, of Western uh, medicine um, is that somewhere along the line, uh, everyone got too focused on, you know, diagnosing and treating because that's what you can bill for. And they stopped, you know, dealing with people as human beings because you, you can't bill for that. And uh, and it's a it's a sad breakdown, and it's it's really a problem with our system. Now, it's not to say that all doctors, you know, are, are like are not, uh, you know, empathetic and kind. But I, I think that that the fundamental issue is that doctors are not uh, at least overtly rewarded for that. Uh, now, uh, you know, where how do I look at it? Uh, I look I'm looking at it from uh, the perspective of how can I be the best doctor I can be, and it doesn't just mean doing a good procedure or selecting the right patients. Um, it, means, um, it means treating people the way they should be treated. And the way people should be treated is with respect. And uh, you know, if, if you're getting treated better at McDonald's than you're getting treated at a medical clinic, there's something seriously wrong. And yet, you know, the people at McDonald's can be pretty nice. You know, and uh, and so I think it's it's not a real stretch to uh, for people to uh, put forth that effort. I think it's uh, but it has to be uh, the doctors have to make it important. It has to be considered a priority. And, and and frankly, it is a priority for me because, you know, when you're in the refractive uh, surgery business, it's it's not a it's not a required procedure. It's entirely elective. People are spending a lot of money and they're scared. And if you're going to throw on to that, you know, uh, being insensitive and callous, you're just making this, you're basically torturing these poor people. That's just, <laughs> that's just not right. And, uh, and, but you can counteract that by uh, actually uh, trying to identify with them and uh, being empathetic. And the other thing people want to see is they want to see that they can trust you and they want to see, uh, see a, a, that you're confident and you don't uh, instill confidence in people by being rude and being abrasive, you instill confidence in, in, in them by being completely honest. And so when people, you know, ask me questions, I give, I tell them a completely honest answer. There's absolutely no, uh, you know, jargon or try, trying to cover anything up. And they, you know, people look in your eyes and, and they can tell, they can tell, you know, how you feel about things and they can tell uh, if you're being a, sincere about your response. And once they see that, they're good. It really only takes 10 seconds. They look at it and they're like, I can trust this guy. And that's it. But strangely enough, nobody teaches you that in medical school. And, no, in a, and I don't know, did they teach anything like that in optometry school, Scott? No, there's very little of that. And you put it under the auspice of practice management, which is mostly around the financial aspects of business. Right. Yeah. 
So well, they didn't even do that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think what your point is that I take is as a doctor, it's it's a responsibility. It's not just that it's an opportunity. It's it's really the responsibility. It's it's taking care of the patient. And I, I sense that some subspecialists are a little bit short and a little bit scientific because it's an easy way to extricate themselves from the room. In other words, I don't have to know a lot more about my hip replacement surgery than the minimum because it's not going to change the way the doctor's going to do what they're going to do. And I'm going to have a team of people that will care for me afterward. And even if I never see the surgeon again, it's going to be what it's going to be. But sight has this quality of life matter to it. And I think you take that so seriously to understand that the more that I comfort them now, we can lean on that information later. Even if they don't remember they'll need reading glasses in two years, you know you had the conversation. You know they gave them a chance to, to think about it. Tell me about where LASIK is today. And, and you know, we've, we've had this wait, we had this wait for, for laser vision correction. LASIK has made advancements in the form of the technology. Where is laser refractive surgery headed in, in your estimation in the next 10, 10 years? Well, um, it's interesting. Um, I guess I hit that from several angles. Number one, the technology has improved. Um, LASIK, like it's not late. The LASIK we do now is not the LASIK of 20 years ago. Um, we had good results 20 years ago or 10 years ago when I did your brother's surgery, but now uh, uh, it's, it's extremely accurate and uh, we rarely do enhancements or touch-ups anymore. Um, and, uh, and so um, it's, and we can do uh, larger amounts of astigmatism much more successfully than we could in the past. So the precision and the sort of reliability, the, the long-term results, all have improved tremendously. So LASIK has, has really gotten good. And just to give you an example, when I started doing LASIK in uh, 1995 at the you know, refractive surgery meetings, people would uh, talk about this milestone where 50% of people would see 2020. That was the milestone. And they were talking about that being just incredible. They <laughs> could do that. Now we're, now we're pushing like uh, above 95%. You know, can, we can get, and that's like, you know, all comers, even big corrections. So it's uh, really, really improved. So the technology has improved. So that's good. Where do I see it going? I, the technology will continue to improve. There's always an advancement every three to six months that we refine things with, but it's getting harder. I mean, the results are so good now, it's getting harder to get it better. So patients will say to me, so what's next? You know, is it going to get better next year? Well, not really. I mean, it's all, it's gotten so good. It, it, you know, it's it's hard to get better than perfect, and we're really butting up to perfect right now. Um, what things have changed, though, is there is a new procedure called the SMILE procedure, where it's a flapless procedure, where a, a, a small uh, lenticule of cornea is, is created and then extracted from uh, a small incision. And the advantage of that would be there'd be no flap. And uh, this is kind of controversial because uh, although there's no flap, so potentially more safe, uh, it also doesn't seem to be quite as accurate. And LASIK, as I just mentioned, has become extremely accurate. So SMILE's been around for about 10 years internationally. It's been in the States now for a few years. It hasn't really caught on. And um, uh, I, know, I know some surgeons who have laser centers and they've bought the machine, the laser that does the SMILE procedure. And they tell me they only use it for only for 10% of their cases. Well, to me, that tells me that it's, you know, not really ready for prime time, but maybe this that'll happen. Maybe that could happen in the next five years. So we'll have to wait and see. If it does, of course, uh, I'll uh, adjust to it. But um, I'm not holding my breath right now, Scott, I'll tell you that. Uh, it's, uh, it's just LASIK's just gotten so good. 
And we just, you know, we've got it so refined now. Another interesting change that happened, Scott, is that um, back 25 years ago, everyone and their brother and their sister wanted to do LASIK, who was in the, you know, surgeon, you know, category. Um, everyone was involved. I mean, it just seemed like it was the new exciting thing. And that has changed dramatically in the last 25 years. All the kind of low volume mom and pop sort of providers have been uh, driven out uh, simply because it's, it's such a competitive business and uh, the technology has got, is extremely expensive. And, uh, and the other thing is, is that um, there's sort of easier, uh, easier uh, fish to catch. Uh, cataract surgery is, is got, has, now has a lot of options in terms of specialty lenses and, um, and charging for different ways of fragmenting the lens, you know, with the femtosecond laser. And so there's all kinds of ways of making cat money with cataract surgery. And that's a lot easier than trying to compete in the laser vision market, which is just cutthroat uh, business. So what's happened is the laser vision market has become uh, a market of very few players. It's basically the corporate providers and then a few big centers. And that's it. Uh, so it's really, it's really, um, you know, really weeded out all the, the sort of smaller providers over the last 20 years. So you've written six books on LASIK. You've authored uh, dozens of articles where do you get these cases to talk about? How do you write about them to your colleagues and maintain this expertise without coming across as somebody who knows it all, right? Because I think you'd balance that really well. Well, you know, uh, we don't, I don't know it all. And, uh, and, and most of the books I've written have been collaborative efforts. So uh, what I've served as editor and then the author of, uh, let's say, uh, 50% of the book, but the rest of it, I try to collaborate and I try to get uh, people who have something to contribute in those areas. Let's say there's a expert in uh, corneal topography uh, or someone who's an expert in one particular aspect of the procedure. Well, I try to recruit that person to write that chapter and try, you know, to try to create the, the book of the, of the, you know, the best value to, to the reader. And, um, but, you know, I think, uh, that's always a danger in life. You know, you never want to come across as condescending because nobody likes that. And uh, and so really what uh, all the books I did weren't designed to show everyone how great I was. It was really designed to try to represent the procedure the best way I possibly could. I was always trying to be as absolutely educational and thorough as possible. And what I wanted to do was just make the best book I possibly could make. It had really... Nothing to, you know, uh, a side benefit, of course, and my name's on the front of it. So that hopefully that will reflect on me to some degree. But I wasn't uh, at all trying to ever talk down to my audience because my audience are my colleagues, right. right? And how can you talk down to your colleagues? We're all doctors. Uh, we're all just trying to learn. And everyone's got something to contribute. So uh, that's, that's kind of always was my approach. So back to this precision part of life. You ended up taking on car remodeling and home remodeling. Tell me a little bit about how this perfectionism and uh, precision, not perfectionism, precision approach to life has affected you in your downtime. That's really fascinating. Well, you know, what I've discovered is uh, even though I'm a surgeon and, uh, and I do do uh, some cerebral kind of things too, you know, writing books and papers, and I really like uh, working on mechanical tasks. I, I just, I, I derive a tremendous amount of pleasure about it, in it and I can lose myself in these things for hours. And uh, sometimes like, you know, when I was, uh, you know, I rebuilt a, um, a Gatsby kit car that I was a barn find that the motor was, you know, been sitting there for 20 years. 
and uh, I'd be working on that, or I, I rebuilt a 69 Mustang and then a 59 Corvette. Sometimes my wife would come in the garage. She'd have to drag me out of there because it'd be one in the morning. And I, I just completely lose sense of, uh, sense of time because uh, it was, it's just, it's sort of, it's sort of hypnotic. It's mesmerizing. And it's not that uh, it's uh, rocket science, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's just intriguing seeing how all the things go together and then working at it and putting it, to, figuring it out and then putting it together and then finally getting it exactly the way you want it. It's, uh, I, I find it, uh, I find it, I really enjoy it. And it's funny, Scott, I, I really enjoy it, but I enjoy it for a, a fixed period of time, like mm -hmm. a, somewhere between two to four hours. After that, I've had it. I, I'm done. You know, I don't need to do that anymore. Uh, but uh, but uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do this as a full-time job. I wouldn't want to be an auto mechanic. Uh, it's, it's, it's too much in the trenches, you know, and you know, I don't think I have any hands left. And, you know, it, it's too hard, frankly. It's, it's, it's it hard is hard. Right? But uh but but doing it, doing some of these projects, uh, you know, just a few hours a day, I find it uh, it's it's really good for my peace of mind because it just allows me to kind of go into a different space and uh, just work on a problem and not, you know, trouble my mind with anything else. Let me ask you for a last point of view. Give some advice to predominantly the optometry industry listeners to this podcast on what you'd advise them to do in guiding their patients around the options for them to see the best? Well, yeah, I think you know this um, pretty much as well as I do, Scott, and it's, uh, it's to, uh, you know, really scrutinize who the providers are in your area and, uh, and take a, a real critical look at them. And that's, that's your right to take a critical look at the providers in your area. And then, and uh, and and give them an honest assessment. Don't just send your patients to whoever everyone else does, and don't just send your patients to who's uh, convenient. You know, you want to you want to send the patients to someone who's going to treat them with respect and give them good surgical results, and treat you with respect. You know, the doc the referring doctor. Those are all you know very important pieces of the puzzle. If those pieces aren't there, then there's something there's something not right. That system's broken. And you need to look for alternatives, and and uh, that's that's kind of your responsibility as a provider. If you're going to refer patients, you need to find the good providers. But you know the thing is, as you know, optometry is a very uh, a very uh, tight group, and so just talking to your colleagues, it shouldn't be too hard to sort out you know who's the best provider for refractive surgery or cataract surgery or or retina. Um, but I think uh, I think that my main message would be, and this is something I don't think that maybe. Uh, some optometrists understand is is you're the ones in control. You know you're not you're not uh, helpless here by any means because you're the gatekeeper. You're the ones with all the patients, and the surgeons they want all those patients. So you can control how that patient is treated. You can control how you're treated, and uh, in many ways you can you know obviously control the result of the surgery too if you pick the right surgeon. So rather than feeling like you're you're just a piece of the puzzle. You're actually the integral piece of the puzzle because you're the gatekeeper, and uh, you're in the position of power. And I, I don't think that necessarily uh, it's always perceived that way. You know, I feel very fortunate having practiced in Madison, Wisconsin, with cataract, retina, refractive surgeon partners that really wanted to meet me in that process. And I was wondering how my colleagues in other parts of the country did it. And I'm assuming that, that many listeners feel that they have good relationships, but you made a very important point. 
and it's not about the optometrist controlling it in the form of, you know, sort of uh, being inappropriate about the control, but doing the research and being honest in the assessment of what's going on and expecting a collaborative, respectful approach, doctor to doctor, um, even when the optometrist is not at the surgeon's level of surgical expertise, they have that relationship and they have that very important sense of how the patient should be treated. And when that goes well, it goes really well. And I can't thank you enough for all the patients. And it's not done. I've got more to come. But uh, in the meantime, it's just been a thrill to tell your story. And uh, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today, Lou. I appreciate it sincerely. Well, thank you, Scott, and uh, thanks for inviting me. It's been fun. Yep, and for the audience, as always, I really appreciate that you've listened and watched to this Sandbox story. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.